Try to imagine this with me this morning. After 20 years, 20 years of chipping, dabbing, and scrubbing, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper was finally restored and the public had its first chance to see the painting on May 28, 1999. Groups of no more than 25, by reservation only, sounds like today, were allowed to enter Our Lady of Grace Church in Milan, Italy, through an elaborate system of air filtration chambers that were intended to eliminate dust and pollution and thereby to preserve one of the world's most famous and most copied artworks. The Last Supper was commissioned by a duke who lived in Milan in 1494 and was completed in 1498. It's a work of art that's as famous for its fragility as it is for its artistic power. Leonardo used an experimental technique to paint on a damp wall of Our Lady of Grace Church, and it began deteriorating and inviting touch-ups almost as soon as he had finished it. The latest restoration, the seventh since 1726, was heralded as a milestone of boldness and patience and craftsmanship. The Italian culture minister told reporters, no one can say any longer, this is not Leonardo. But this restoration was not without some pretty vocal critics who argued that it was a mistake to remove the previous restorations. One critic was quoted as saying, this is not Leonardo. It's merely fragments of bottom layers of the underlying original. Now the painting, of course, depicts our Lord Jesus seated at a long table with his 12 disciples that he had selected and called to serve him. Now, whether you like the restoration or not, it is true that the painting has regained astonishing light and clarity. And the faces of our Lord and the 12 disciples are now strikingly clear. So who were these men that Jesus chose and whose honor works of art have been created, cathedrals have been built, legends have been spun. Herbert Lockyer describes the 12 disciples that Jesus chose this way. Listen to his description. A fact that we cannot deny is that no body of men, few or many, has ever exercised so vast an influence on the world as a small circle of ordinary men Jesus called, trained, commissioned and empowered to further his cause. Surveyed from the human angle, the 12 had meager equipment for the great task before them. Yet forward they went to summon the world to his feet, and the world came and is still coming. We have John alone to thank for a few short glimpses into the life of a disciple that Jesus called by the name of Thomas. Thomas is a Hebrew name. He's also referred to by the name Didymus, which is a Greek name. Both names have the same meaning, a twin, a twin. 
Now, obvious questions are raised by the meaning of his name, like, um, so who was the twin sibling of Thomas, and did he or she become a follower of Christ? Well, we'll have to wait until we get to heaven to have the definitive answer to that question. But one early tradition states that he had a twin sister by the name of Lycia. Another early historian by the name of Eusebius wrote that Thomas' real name was Judah and that the nickname twin was given to him by the other disciples because he already had two other Judas, Judas Thaddeus and Judas Iscariot. Now, the New Testament is silent as to when and how Thomas was called. Since John is the sole source of information about Thomas, most believe that he came from the same region as John, Galilee, and that he had the same occupation as John, a fisherman. Support for that belief is provided for us by John's reference to Thomas as being one of the seven disciples that decided to go out for a day of fishing, a night of fishing, on the Sea of Galilee shortly after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So perhaps like some of the other disciples, Jesus found Thomas fishing along the Sea of Galilee, and he said to him, Thomas, follow me. And Thomas did. Our Lord expressed his decision to choose and call his disciples in these terms given to them in the upper room. You do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So let me ask you a question this morning. When did you respond in repentance and faith and obedience to Jesus' call on your life? Let's think back to that moment. How many years has it been? 70? For me, 66? 20? 10? Maybe one. Let's all pause right at this moment and rejoice today in a deep sense of humility that Jesus found us. And he called us. And our names are written in heaven. And we know who we are. And we know where we're going. Therefore, we can face whatever life throws at us. Because even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, like David expressed it in Psalm 23, we know who we are. The Lord is my shepherd. And we know where we're going. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So Jesus called Thomas, and Thomas left everything and followed him. Now John's three other references to Thomas also took place during the concluding days of Jesus' public ministry. As we take a close look at the portrait that John alone paints for us of this disciple, there's some definite lessons to be learned and applied to our lives from his story as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper once again. The setting for the first appearance of Thomas on center stage in the Gospel of John is a familiar one. 
Listen as I read some selected verses from John 11. A man named Lazarus was sick, so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, the one you love is very sick. Finally, after two days, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. But his disciples objected. Teacher, they said, only a few days ago, the Jewish leaders in Judea were trying to kill you. Are you going there again? Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with Jesus. As was true for the restoration of the Last Supper, many have been critical of Thomas at this point and have accused Thomas of being pessimistic and fatalistic. I would prefer to praise Thomas for being committed and courageous. I would agree with one author who wrote of Thomas, his attitude at this juncture of Christ's ministry was a sign of his attachment and devotion to him and marks him as having a love both deep and strong as that of any other disciple. His was a love that counted no sacrifice too great. He was ready to leave all for Christ, dare all for Christ, and die with Christ. To a great degree, Thomas was reflecting what Jesus had already demanded of his disciples. After he had sent them out two by two, he said to them, anyone who does not love, take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. You know, our Lord never once promised his disciples that they would enjoy a life of health and prosperity, though some in our world would make that promise today. Instead, he never tried to hide from his disciples the truth that following him would not always be easy. In fact, he warned them that they would be handed over to the courts and beaten in the synagogues because they were his followers. He encouraged them not to be afraid of those who wanted to kill them because they could only kill their bodies, not their souls. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas were commended as being, quote, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, those who confronted the ancient serpent called Satan are described in these words. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And Thomas did not love his wife so much as to shrink from death. And when the words of Thomas are placed within the context of our Lord's Supper, they should rekindle and reignite our passion to live for Christ. As Paul expressed it in 2 Corinthians 5.15, Christ died for all in order that, here's why, Christ died for all in order that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. G. Campbell Morgan 
suggests in his commentary on the book of Matthew that there are three things we need to remember when we come to the table of the Lord. It's to remember him. It's to commune with him. It's to pledge ourselves in loyalty to him. Writes Campbell Morgan, never let us forget that. This is our oath of allegiance to live and fight and die for this king. And the way things are progressing in our world, it may not be long before those of us who have been called by our Lord and have chosen to pledge our allegiance to him and to his inspired word will have to pay a price. That day seems to be just around the corner. Thomas is remembered for his courageous expression of commitment to live and fight and die for his king. Thomas is also remembered for a statement that he made and a question that he asked his king in the upper room shortly after the Lord's Supper had been celebrated for the first time. Jesus just announced that one of them was going to betray him and Peter was going to deny him three times. He had also informed him that he was leaving and they were staying. But where was he going? Could they go with him? How could they get to where he was going? And those are the thoughts that were troubling in their minds as they were trying to process what he just shared with them. He was leaving. They were staying. John alone provides us the dialogue in John 14. Don't be troubled. You trust in God. Now trust in me. There are many rooms in my father's house and I'm going to prepare a place for you and you know where I'm going and how to get there. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We haven't any idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one can come to the Father except by me. The second appearance on the center stage of Scripture has also drawn a lot of criticism directed towards Thomas. Some have chosen to condemn him for being slow of mind and overly cautious in accepting truth. But let's put ourselves in his sandals for a moment. All Thomas knew was that his dear Lord was about to leave. And that was enough to break his heart. Because his supreme desire was to be with his master, wherever that was. For that we must commend and not condemn Thomas, the question, how, how can we know the way, also reveals something else about Thomas. It reveals him simply as a seeker after truth and knowledge, fuller truth and deeper knowledge. How thrilled Thomas must have been, as one author suggested, that his Lord was the way to God, without, the way without which there is no going, the Lord was the truth of God, the truth without which there is no knowing. And the Lord was the life from God, the life without which there is no living. And when the words of Thomas are placed within the context of the Lord's Supper, they should also rekindle and reignite our passion to be with Christ and to learn from Christ. 
that every time we gather around the Lord's Supper, Scripture says we are proclaiming to each other the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. Until he comes. And that should rekindle our passion to look for his appearing, to long for his appearing, to be ready for his appearing, to live in the hope of his appearing because one day when everything is ready, he's going to come and get us. We'll always be with him. One day our faith will become sight. One day we will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. One day we will see his face and his name will be on our forehead. In his first letter, John reminds us that everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Therefore, we should live each day of our lives with this truth in our minds, perhaps today. Perhaps today. So that we may be confident and unashamed before him that is coming. Perhaps before the service is over. Every time we gather around the table of the Lord, Scripture says we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, remembering, remembering him. And the more we are led to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross and why he did it, the more we realize how much we still need to learn from him about the depth of his love for us and the depth of our sin that he himself bore in his body on the tree. But until he comes, we are to be seekers after truth and knowledge, fuller truth, deeper knowledge. We're to keep growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that we may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering. Becoming like him in his death. Thomas is remembered for his commitment to live and fight and die for his king. He is remembered for a statement that he made and a question that he asked that reveals his passion to be with the one he loved and to learn from the one he loved. But there's little doubt that Thomas is most remembered and roundly criticized for his expression of doubt following the resurrection of the one he loved. One critic of the restoration of the Last Supper said, this is not Leonardo. And many critics have said to Thomas, this is not what a disciple should look like. John alone relates the story. One of the disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nails, wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. So Thomas was not with the other 10 disciples when Jesus appeared in the upper room the evening of his resurrection. No reason is given for his absence. No praise or blame for his absence. Thomas must have still been in Jerusalem because the disciples were able to make contact with him after that historic moment. He may have lost complete hope. He just did not want to meet with the other guys who would be talking about the tragic events 
of that week. You know, we all process grief differently. Maybe you just need a time to be alone. Since he was the first one to openly declare that I'm willing to live and fight and die for my king, maybe he had needed some personal time to deal with his guilt because he left in the garden the one he said he would die with. And he abandoned him. You know, we asked the question early in our study, who was Thomas Twin? Perhaps the best answer to that question is at one time or another, all of us have acted like Thomas Twin. More often than any of us would care to admit, we have all refused at various times in our lives to believe and trust our God and have insisted that God prove himself to us again and again and again. Our gracious Lord was there to stoop to Thomas' level of experience in order to lift him up to where he ought to be. So John goes on to tell us eight days later the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. He said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, I was listening, Thomas. Put your finger here in my hands, put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Probably on his knees. It's been said that Thomas simply saw and believed. No touching was necessary. It's been said that like the wise man and Mary Magdalene on resurrection morning, Thomas addressed his Lord in the language of immediate and intense worship. It's been said that Thomas is the only person in the New Testament to actually address our Lord Jesus as God. Interesting thought. It's been said that since nobody else had previously addressed Jesus in this way, quote, it marks a leap of faith. And the moment he came to see that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead, Thomas came to see something of what was implied. Mere men did not rise from the dead in this fashion. The one who was now so obviously alive, though he had been dead, could only be addressed in the, in the language of adoring worship. Here are some questions for each of us to consider in this room this morning and watching at home. When I gather with the Lord's people on the first day of the week, is it my immediate and intense desire to worship Jesus? Does humility, adoration, and surrender characterize my worship? Or have I bought into the consumer mentality that is so prevalent in many Christian circles today? That church on Sunday is in the final analysis all about me and not about him. That I come to be entertained so that I will feel good when I leave. And if I'm not entertained, if I do not feel good when I leave, then perhaps I should check out another church where my needs can be met. Michael W. Smith warned us 
of such a consumer mentality where you wrote these words that we all sang earlier, and I trust we sang them from our hearts. When he wrote, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. And when the words of Thomas are placed within the context of the Lord's Supper, they should rekindle and reignite our passion to worship Christ. As we echo Thomas' words in the presence of our Lord and Savior this morning, my Lord and my God. And as we rejoice in Jesus' words to Thomas, that historic moment, when he said to Thomas, because you believed me, You've seen me, you have believed. Blessed, blessed are all those who have not seen and yet have believed. In a few moments, we're going to have the opportunity to commune with and worship the one who chose, called, and died for us as we take the bread and the cup, remembering him and proclaiming his death until he comes. If you're visiting with us today and you can rejoice in a deep sense of humility that Jesus found you and called you and that as a result of your repentance for your sins and your faith and obedience to him, you know your name is written in heaven. We invite you to celebrate with us. After all, we're together part of God's forgiven and forever family. But if you are not sure that your name is written in heaven, if you're not sure who you are and where you are going one moment after that last breath is taken, if you're not secure in your identity and your destiny, please connect with me or Pastor David Mariano will be at the front after the service. The bread, which is a symbol of Christ's broken body, and the cup, which is a symbol of his shed blood, will be passed together in one space. Hold on to yours, open it carefully, and then when all have been served, we'll eat and drink together. Through our celebration of the Lord's Supper this morning, we have another opportunity to remember and to proclaim to one another what our crucified and risen Lord has done for us and what he would have us do for him, to live for him, to look for him, to learn from him, to worship him. I'm going to answer one other question for us these closing moments. So whatever happened to Thomas? The traditions surrounding the life and ministry of Thomas seem to be the most reliable of all the other disciples. That sometime after the day of Pentecost, it is commonly believed that Thomas traveled east as far as the frontiers of Parthenia and India. Tradition says that the Savior appeared to Thomas one night in a dream and said, Fear not, Thomas, go to India 
and preach the word there, for my grace is with you. So Thomas decided to hire himself as a slave to an Indian merchant, sailed to India, and later entered the service of the king of the Indians, a man by the name of Gondaferes. While in the king's service, Thomas ultimately remained in the king of kings' service. One tradition says that as he was building the church by hand in India, he had the opportunity to lead to complete faith in Christ the wise men who had made their journey to Bethlehem, and he could tell them the rest of the story. As noted on your outline, the symbol that is used for Thomas has two parts. The first is the carpenter's square. It's a reminder of his ministry in building the church in India with his own hands. And several years ago, I had an opportunity to meet a lady from India who had actually been in that church that Thomas built with his own hands. The spear is a reminder of how he died. The well-documented tradition is that Thomas finished the race set before him as a disciple of Jesus Christ on the Indian coast near Bombay, and that a pagan priest pierced his body with a spear while he was kneeling in prayer. Thomas lived and died for the one who lived and died for him. Thomas did not love his life so much as to shrink from death. An old hymn we don't sing much anymore speaks to the disciples this way. A chosen band, glorious band, the chosen few on whom the Spirit came. Twelve valiant saints, their hope they knew and mocked the cross and flame. They met the tyrant's brandished steel, the lion's gory mane. They bowed their necks the death to feel. Who follows in their trade? Who follows in their trade? Next Sunday, as you enter this place that God has prepared for this part of his body here on the island to worship, may your very first thought be as you walk through those doors, my Lord and my God, I am here to worship you. Our Father, we are thrilled by the description of the new Jerusalem that you gave to John. We're awed by the fact that the city has 12 foundations, and we're encouraged and edified by the fact that on each of those 12 foundations will be written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That means the name of Thomas will be forever engraved on one of those foundations. Until that day we join with him in that city and in your presence, Help us by your amazing grace and through your indwelling spirit to leave this place with a renewed commitment and a resolve to live for you, to look for you, to learn from you, to worship you. Now to him was able to keep us from stumbling to present us faultless before his presence 
with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, Amen.